Unorthodox with the Angry Behavior Analyst is a relief valve for stifled thoughts, theories, and opinions related to social science. Unorthodox is unfiltered, uncensored, and most importantly, uncancelable. The Angry Behavior Analyst is all triggers, no warnings. All right, everybody, I have a very special guest here today. I have a rugged bearded gentleman from Wyoming who left me some very meaningful feedback, which I'm always, I'm always surprised to get honest feedback these days because it's hard to come across. So I brought him on the podcast because I wanted to talk through this in real time rather than attempt to kind of mitigate all of these maybe disagreements through social media. So Brad, thank you and welcome. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. I've never been called to task for my feedback. So this is going to be Wow. This is a good one. So you guys obviously can't see Brad, but he has like a raging beard, long hair. He's from Wyoming. Brad, when I think of Wyoming, I think of the show Yellowstone. (laughs) Is it completely not the same? Yeah, I don't even think they filmed Yellowstone in Wyoming. I (laughs) I believe it's filmed in New Mexico, if I'm not mistaken. Really? Instead of Montana? Uh, It could be. Maybe it is Montana. Maybe it's another show that I'm thinking that was filmed in... uh, Filmed in, uh, but it was about Wyoming. No, it was, uh, uh, that, oh man, Jeremy Irons, the movie. Jeremy Irons. It's Wind River is what it's called. He's like a detective. On yeah. The yeah. So that's actually where I live. I live in Lander, Wyoming, which is, uh, yeah, a pretty small town in, uh, on the edge of the Wind River mountain range. Cool. How small is small? That's uh, 7,000 people. Oh, wow. That is pretty small. Yeah. And then like the nearest town, like the nearest Walmart's about 35 minutes away. Holy crap. How do you do it, Brad? <laughs> it's uh, Amazon. It's Amazon. A- Amazon becomes your friend and, uh, you know, you just don't value things like shopping. That You know, I that's a great problem to have. <laughs> yeah. You end up valuing like the outdoors because there's a lot of outdoor activities here. And, sure. Uh, but not right now. It's negative 30 and, you know. Oh. It's uh yeah, it's a brutal, brutal. It's actually warmer now. I think it's like thirty degrees today. Wait, 37. oh wow, so t-shirt last, weather. Yeah, yeah, it's t-shirt best weather. T-shirt you know, best in flannel. Yeah, best in shorts. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Except for no shorts because that's against you know dress yeah. code. You gotta wear pants. You know? Of course, so, of course. Yeah, yeah. So Brad, I I guess I wanted to start with part of your review so that we could figure out maybe. How we disagree, if there's any way either of us will move in any sort of way towards the other point of view, but at best, we could just hear each other's perspective. Okay. I was wondering specifically about the social contagion claims, and a lot of a lot of what I post has to do with the influence of social media and how I believe that while it's not 100% responsible for the rise in mental illness, I do think it plays a pretty big role. Um, and you don't think so, right? Um, I, I think I'm mixed on it. I don't actually know. I'm okay. more comfortable in that space, right? I don't actually know. Um, I think that there's not enough research. I mean, social media is a fairly new phenomenon. So I think to... Yeah prescribe and say that social media is causing mental illness, I think is a bit of a, a leap. In, I agree. In logic. So um, I think my concern was more, I guess when you were, maybe I took your episode a little bit wrong. 
and it's possible. Like it's, you know, we all have our own tales and our own history and our own sure. learning. Um, I felt like you were overemphasizing with transgendered individuals, mm-hmm. the social contagion, mm-hmm. social media contagion. And I, I just felt like that was not really like a evidence-based position. Um, I know that some of the people that have made that claim, their research has been highly questionable. They've been accused of sampling bias, for example, like going on Facebook and posting their survey questions in in a space where those people are already anti-trans or anti. Sure. So I think um, that was just one of that was one of my. I think one of the things that really took me aback. Um, I remember I was angrily jogging up, up <laughs> in the mountains like I normally like to do, but I was listening to your podcast and I was thinking, man, I, I agree. Like I'm angry. Like I am, you know, cancel culture is something that I I worry about or not being able to speak, not being able to say things. So I, I kind of jived with you on that. But then I was surprised at the direction that your that episode on your podcast took. Surprised in the sense of my stance? Um, surprised in maybe just an overemphasis on the social contagion mm. and versus a less emphasis on biological or psychological or whatever variables that you want to describe. Because I think it's, it's interesting that we live in a time where people are much more open about saying they're intersect or they're non-binary or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever. And like, what, what is causing that, that rise? Yeah. And, I, and I think I thought that's where your, your podcast was going to go. Like looking at is social media, uh, is that part of it? Is that something that could be contributing where I, I felt like your conclusion was that it was because, because like the research that I'm familiar with, and I'm like, I've been a member of the American Counseling Association for a very long time and their journal articles that they publish. And even my own personal experience, I, I have family members that have struggled with gender identity and it's been more like they've been ostracized. From, so like discriminated against what you brought yeah, up to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I, I felt like this idea that it was like a popularity contest or just, mm-hmm. I'm, I felt like that was almost like kind of dismissing what the real issue is and maybe, sure. and, and I don't know what the real issue is. I don't have all the answers or um, solutions. I'm not claiming that I do. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I, I hope that I could clarify my stance a little bit. I, I'm really interested in how social media generally affects our perceptions of mental illness. I I see so many misconceptions of what mental illness looks like. And I, my family has had a long history of mental illness, very severe mental illness too. Um, My, my brother died from a fentanyl overdose. So he was struggled with addiction for years. And so when I see some things on social media, it really bothers me that it's, that it's, put out as this glamorous, romantic, beautiful, almost play. And I think that's where a lot of my strong opinions with the transgender thing come from. However, I I don't want it to come across as this false dichotomy where me saying that social media has a strong influence automatically means I minimize the experience because I know that these people are in a great deal of pain too. Yeah, because my experience with it, and this is just my personal experience, has been more like people want to suicide. 
Yes. Because of, or, you know, they're going to school and they're being barked at, you know, by their, by their peers. So this idea of social contagion and reinforcement, and I feel like it's, um, I'm, I mean, it's like always, like I try to think of that clinical psych term, is it the diathesis where it's like an interplay of social and biological and psychological, there's all these factors. Yeah. Like, like who we are and, and what we are. And I don't know, I just, uh, I feel pretty strongly that those people have a, even if they are social, it, it is social contagion. Like, I feel like it's really up to the medical community, the professional community to help guide them through that, whatever it may be. And so I think that would be somewhere where you and I would probably strongly agree the, the mm-hmm. need for professional services and support. Because like, as you said, there is a lot of misunderstanding. I mean, I deal with it every day at my work, right? Someone's bi- bipolar because like their mood changed. It's here right now. It's really good. And then next second they're mad. So yep. they're, they're bipolar. And it's like, well, that's actually not bipolar. That's, yeah. I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, that's human. Like, we all have fluctuations in our mood and we can be triggered. Sure. And, and so I do agree with you on that exact stance that like having accurate information is is essential and really important. And, and I do think when you get like the TikTok out there and, the, and anybody can post whatever they want, like, yeah, I agree. That is, it, it is problematic and it could be dangerous misinformation. And I worry too, because you had brought up that these people that are struggling, so these people that are maybe struggling with gender identity, they obviously need to be guided by the the medical community and a professional versus seeking out a com- just a community alone on social media. And that's wonderful too, because we all need our support group. So I'm in support of that to a degree. I want to know your stance on some professionals kind of affirming these identities versus attempting to maybe figure out where the disconnect is coming from. Um, gosh, that's a, so basically what you're asking me is like, do I think that myself as a professional, if somebody comes into me and says, Hey, I'm, I want to be he, she, or they, them, that I should affirm that. Yes. That's kind of the gender affirming model. Yeah, I do think, and I do, and I don't have an exact source here, but I do know that the uh, Counseling Association published an article about decreasing rates of suicide in people that are intersect or non-binary or whatever, that one of the most important things that you can do is affirm them by calling them by their preferred name or pronoun. So I, I, I view that more. I mean, I would, I would do that if someone came and asked me. If they were like, hey, Brad, like, you know, I want to be they, them. Okay. Like, it doesn't harm me. It doesn't do anything to me. But if it can give that person a feeling of satisfaction and a feeling that they're okay with me, and I know from looking at the research that that does reduce rates of suicide among people that are transgendered, I feel like that's pretty important. Regardless of whether that's a real phenomenon or not, or whether they're struggling from social media contagion or because they're whatever. I do feel like it's a simple gift that I can give someone. I can understand that because I I speak to many people in trans community and I will call them by their preferred name and pronouns. Like you said, that's not something where I will fight tooth and nail to make sure that, no, I will call you by your birth given name. I mean, that's a (laughs) a battle that's ridiculous to me Um, because we like to be called by, by our names too. And, 
you know, it's, we have every right to get upset if somebody butchers our name or purposely calls us something else. I guess where me, you and me might disagree on this is that I really have a hard time finding evidence to support the idea that people are committing suicide solely because they're trans. I mean, I think if you're struggling with gender identity, that has a whole history of anxiety and depression that could contribute to suicidality versus just the trans identity alone. Yeah, I mean, I think we live in a society where those particular types of identities are pretty dehumanized. I mean, we have states currently passing legislation like banning yeah. care and affirmation of or when they bring up terms like gender affirming care, like instead of me being able to see my doctor, I get to see my politician who then tells me like what that is or isn't. And I, and I feel like that's extraordinarily problematic. I mean, even, yeah, I mean, I feel strongly that, that like we should be looking at the AMA or the American endocrinology society or the American psychiatric society. Like what are their, guidelines for the treatment of someone with gender dys dysphoria like I don't yeah so part of and we'll get to this in a little bit because you had left part of your comment about deborah so um and her work with the neuroscience and working with some psychiatrists that work with the gender uh people who struggle with gender dysphoria and typically gender dysphoria is treated through a typical course of psychotherapy and when they're not affirmed. So when they're not told that they should change their name and their pronouns, many of these people go on, I think over 80% of them go on to just right. be homosexual. Sure, so do you think sure. that we're jumping the gun a little bit when we say things like we just need to affirm them because. It I mean, I, I could, we could be, I mean, but like even the DSM, I mean, I think one of your sources was the, was the diagnostic statistical manual and even in there, it admits that rates of gender dysphoria are probably underreported because not everybody is seeking gender affirming and whatever gender affirming care means. I mean, I think that's even a, a really important thing to mm -hmm. like describe what is that. And a lot of times it's something just as simple as getting a haircut or like sure. wearing a dress. It isn't like genital mutilation where I think we've let politics Mm -hmm. and perception that. hijack that discussion yeah. where we've made it it's not a medical decision or a medical thing it's now like a decision between you and your politician or you and your preacher which i feel isn't entirely appropriate yeah that's a really good point because a lot of what we see is the media version of this whole transgender um what would you call it i guess transgender movement i'm not sure what word to use for lack of a better word we'll just say movement um, but what, what concerns me, and this is along with what you said too, is it's almost perceived as millions of people are being given puberty blockers and hormones and they're getting right, double mastectomies. Right. And I think that's really concerning, even if it's only one or five people, but when it's blown out to be something where it's millions upon millions of people are getting these procedures done, then I think mm -hmm. it, it definitely skews the perception of the public too. No, I agree with you because like, I think it's like it's hyperbolic if I could mm -hmm. use that term like it's I mean, because you look at rates of transgendered or even like Alabama where they pass those really hard like you can't do that's child abuse. And it's like looking at the state of Alabama, it's like maybe 15,000 people. So sure. like in a state that I live in, like Wyoming, where it's 500,000 people, you're looking at 5,000 people, mm -hmm. maybe. So we're denying them care because 
because why? Because we're uncomfortable with it or we're, we don't understand. Like it seems gender yeah. sex. And we often can conflate those terms as well. You know, gen- gender expression and, and sex. I, I mean, like, like I said, I'm not an expert in this by any means, but it's more like just kind of listening to what uh, these the people that are experiencing these disorders or what the medical community is saying or what the American Counseling Association or the American Psychological, what are, what are they saying about this? What are these professionals saying about this particular phenomenon that we seem to be, and you're right, like there's more attention to it. That's really tricky too, because there are so many different perceptions of it. Um, but, and it's hard to tell what's a legitimate perception or what is that perception that has kind of been swept along with the group due to only watching one side of the fence, if you will, (laughs) the the left or the right side of the political fence or the political divide. I think that plays a huge role in our perception of this too. And I, I do think it's unfair that we have things like drag, drag queen story hour, for example, to carry that as this narrative, they're all groomers. I think that is mean. I I don't think that there's truth to that. I don't think that people who feel like they want to dress in drag are all have the intent of harming children. So I have a problem with that too. No, thank you. Cause like, I actually feel like it's really demeaning to those that Mm -hmm. have been groomed. Yeah. It's like, just because you have a person like a dude, whatever, dressed up in a dress, reading a book. I mean, we're okay if it's your preacher doing that, but then it comes and it's like, hey, it's this guy who's, you know, challenging your gender expression. All of a sudden we think they're a groomer. Sure. Or they're going to like hijack our children and make them what? Like, what's the outcome? What's the goal? What we're all going to dress in dresses and maybe we'll get good, maybe we'll get good pockets on our dresses, right? That's a constant complaint I hear. There you go. (laughs) Dresses, maybe it'll lead to deeper pockets. Yeah, yeah. And to be clear, uh, I do think that the 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 very sexual type of drag shows where there are where there is you know twerking and people doing the splits and they're dressed like very cantily uh, dress yeah. scantily dressed then sure that is inappropriate for children to attend, but again those are things that we see on like libs of t- TikTok. I don't know how many people are actually seeing this happen in real life. So that's maybe a really skewed version. No. And I agree because like, <laughs> then you get like the proud boys that are at the, where were they at recently? Like protesting with their AR 15s against drag queen story hour or, or whatever. When really the idea here is, is they're, they're just like, Hey man, it's okay. Like dudes wear dresses, whatever, man. Like who cares? Like, and that's where it comes down to me. Is like, does it really matter? Is this something that I need to, worry about like what happens if I were a dress like is the yeah. world gonna like come to a stop and like all you know like yeah. chaos is gonna unravel and no I think there's a lot of hyperbolics about this what would be considered too far for you what would people within the transgender movement have to do for you to say okay that's pushing it a little bit too far now we're getting inappropriate or now it's becoming malproductive like counterproductive oh gosh i don't even i don't even know like it would have to be something pretty extreme like you know i'm like at the grocery store people are like i mean is this an x-rated can i swear on this or absolutely oh yeah they're like having (laughs) sex or like giving each other a blowjob in the in the uh, you know supermarket i might be like 
Sure. Seems and playing it weird. off as, and playing it off as, you know, this is my identity. Yes. That's yeah, I would be like, I'd be like, okay, well, I mean, cause like, you know, I work in a facility for adults and I often spend a lot of time like, Hey, you know, if we're going to masturbate, we do that in our bedroom or we do sure. that in the, you know, we shut, we close the door. That's, you know, we talk a lot about public versus private. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have to tell somebody the details of my masturbatory fantasies and then I don't have to tell them like, I, I, like, so I do this a lot with the people that I work with. I'm like, you don't have to tell me what you looked up on porno. Like, yeah. I don't care. <laughs> like you can jerk off to whatever you want. And, like, you don't have to come out and be like, yo, man, check out this midget video. You know, like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, and I've had these types of experiences working in this interesting field that we work in where it's like, no man, come on, dude. Like stay in your room and you don't gotta, I don't need to know. And I, I feel good like without that's, that information. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that would be the thing for me is like public and private is like what you do in a bedroom. Mm-hmm. Like if mm-hmm. like if some dude or some person like they want to whatever, like I don't. It doesn't matter to me. Like I don't care. Like there, it doesn't impact my life by any means. Like it doesn't. It's not impeding my freedom. Or I feel like if I'm legislating against that, I'm impeding their freedom. Freedom to be what they want. Like, um, you know, my, my father always had made this strong argument that my freedom ends where someone else's begins. And it's like, hmm. if I'm not harming anyone, like, okay. So yeah. what, so what if I wear some high heels to work, man? Like, sure. like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, I do. No, I do. That's, that's a yeah. great example. It makes, it makes perfect sense too. I have a question for you, Brad, about you mentioned a um, a poorly vetted book that I referred to. And I was wondering if it was Deborah So's End of Gender or Irreversible Damage or yeah, neither. I, think, uh, I can't remember exactly. So I'm thankful for calling me out on that. But it was the uh, <laughs> I think it was uh, the one about the social media, the social contagion, the loss of our loss of our girls um, to this phenomenon yeah. of, of transgendered where that book sure. itself was based on really shitty research you think so i do yeah i think uh because there's a lot of people out there that have really been like taking that author to task because like once again they go back to this the sampling bias or the selection bias Mm -hmm. and using survey data from parents that have you know that are maybe unsure of what they're i mean and i'll be i'll be honest here like i haven't read the book um but i i did read the articles and I read some of the, um, you know, like mm-hmm. the, and I looked at the types of platforms that that book was being promoted on, sure. which, which was like, you know, Candace Owens, she had that study author on there and they were like talking about this war against girls. And, and it's like, I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's fair. I don't think there's a war against girls by any means. I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe there's evidence to the contrary that you have, I mean, I'm, I'm open to, I mean, here in my small town, people would argue that there is a war against girls and people, oh. would, people would argue that the transgender, I mean, I even went to our, our school board here is, you know, we're like my, we get kind of politically involved. Not, I'm not politically involved. I just will go and listen to the debates. And one sure. of the things that they debated on was, would we have drag queens? Would you allow drag queens to come read stories mm-hmm. to the kids here? And it's like, in my mind, I'm sitting there thinking, well, would you be okay with a preacher coming and reading stories? And like, it's all to me, it's like, you're okay with this, you know, Christian propaganda, but not with this person who's wearing a dress reading a story. Like, I don't, 
Sure. I don't know. Does yeah. that answer your question? It does. It does. So I'm assuming just based off of what you said that we're uh, we're talking about irreversible damage by Abigail Schreier. Okay, and yeah. So Abigail Schreier is a journalist. So she did set out to find parents that were that had children and they were really struggling with suicidality and a lot of the the concerns that you and I have brought up. Do you think if if Abigail Schreier was maybe a neuroscientist or anything outside of being a journalist that you would have a little bit more trust in the book? Um I mean, I think it's so I guess I would go back to like a logical kind of fallacy in a sense cuz I you know, I wonder if that person, they start with a premise, right? They start with this mm-hmm. conclusion that irreversible damage. And like in my mind, is that is that motivated reasoning? Because I believe mm. this is true and then I'm only going out and I'm, I'm ignoring this whole other body of evidence that suggests this other thing, but I'm only attending to this. What supports my 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 belief? And, you know, and I'm not saying, I mean, we all do it. We all you know, I like, I like to be surrounded by people who tell me what I want to hear and believe the same way that I do and you sure. know, I struggle. I think we all struggle when we're confronted with ideas that challenge our, absolutely our perceptions of reality or what we believe mm-hmm. is true. I agree. So that would be, I mean, but once again, I'm, I'm saying that I'll be honest, I didn't read the book. Yeah. I, and the reason why I think I really liked it is because Contrary to the title, maybe they, when I say they, I mean, Abigail Schreier and and the, the researchers that she brought in to comment on the book and share their stories too. They did bring a lot of light to the fact that these kids were really depressed. They were lonelier than ever. They had really splintered social skills. And on top of that, they were gender dysphoric. So I, I mean, B, I have a history of an eating disorder, so right. I know very well the 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 angst and the agony of of struggling in your body. So I really enjoyed that there was that nuanced view to it. So the, the title can seem very much this dramatic headline. Okay. The story itself and the information in there itself does count all of the experiences of parents that worry that their kids are being discriminated against too. And I think the war on girls was we're starting to see some biological men that are identifying as women and kind of infiltrating women's sports and women don't stand a chance anymore. And I think a lot of women who work really hard see that as almost the erasure of of women's sports. I mean, I I think um, once again, I think that's quite hyperbolic, too, because, I mean, there's not really like. I mean, sure, you've got like a few outliers, you know, you've got the, what is it, Lauren, the weightlifter from New Zealand, and then we had the guy from the NC, the swimming person. Oh, Leah Thomas. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Mm -hmm. But I know that, like, I know that a person, Lauren, from New Zealand didn't even, they went to the Olympics, they didn't medal. I mean, I do know that, like, when you've gone through puberty Mm -hmm. as a man, like, that does give you a biological advantage over, over a female, mm-hmm. like your lung capacity increases, your tendons, your bones lengthen, your muscles strengthen. I, I mean, I think, but I've also, I also know, and I've also read studies where you can be equalized if you're on estrogen for a certain period of time, mm-hmm. like where the, the advantage in a sense goes away. But I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know for sure. And I know that the Olympics and the NCAA, they're, they're not, as hyper concerned about this as certain political parties are. 
Like, for example, um, I know in uh, North Dakota, they passed a law banning the, you know, men participating in women's sports. But when asked if there was any examples of that or any time they could point to when that actually happened there, they, they weren't able to provide any any evidence. And I think, once again, like you're legislating based off fear, you're not legislating based off evidence. Like, are women's sports really being hijacked by men? Like, that to me seems like a really interesting empirical question, like something that we could investigate and find out. Is that true? So let's say I think the period of time was 10 years to be on hormones or estrogen for there to be a little bit more of a the equalizer. Let's just call it that. But that also doesn't change hand size of men, wingspan, stature, height, bone density. So and and that's really hard to compete with too and on to to add to that point, I wonder why there aren't any trans I'm sorry, I have to do this in my head to make sure I get this right. Trans men, so biological women that are competing in male sports. It it really only seems to be that biological men, so trans women, are trying to compete in women's sports. So I find that interesting too. Yeah, that is, I mean, I'll agree with you. That is interesting. I just, I I just more worry about the hyperbolics of it. And like, Honestly, like, Hyper, I mean, can, really quick, Brad, sorry to cut you off here. Hyperbolic in how it's perceived. You mean like the, the dramatics of it? Yeah. Like where we're taking like one or two examples in a population of 350 million people. And then we're just mm-hmm. applying it and saying, cause I mean, I've heard people like, you know, a friend of mine argued that, you know, if we don't do something about this, men mm-hmm. who are losers are going to just transition to be women and take mm-hmm. over women's sports. And I just, I think that seems like a real slippery slope, like a real, like, I mean, like, so I've ridden a mountain bike somewhat. Okay. You know, like I've, I'm an okay mountain biker, but even mm-hmm. if I transition to being a woman, I still get my ass kicked. You know, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not even kidding. man. Like I, I have been hands down destroyed by, you know, more women than I can. It, it wouldn't even matter. You know, it wouldn't yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know. Like, I just, I, I, I can't imagine just waking up one day and being like, oh, I'm a loser, so I'm going to say I'm a woman so I can so I can compete in women's sports. Like, I don't. Yeah, that it does seem like it'd be more calculated, or not calculated, maybe more thought out than just, like uh, you said, it's waking like up. We're, I mean, like, do you remember that really bad movie with Johnny Knoxville where he pretended like he had a disability so he could participate in the Special Olympics? yes. Yeah, I mean, like, that's how we're kind of equating this is like, all these dudes that are losers are just going to not compete in men's sports anymore. They're just going to go compete in women's sports because they want Mm. a medal or they want some kind of. So I don't I don't think that's I don't know. I just have a hard time imagining that that's true. Yeah. But there's all these people that are just like, oh, okay, well, I suck here. Oh, I'm going to go do this. Good idea. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to go over it. I'm going to go get ostracized by my peers and be made fun of and. Like, I mean, yeah. I look at somebody like Lauren, like, I mean, I, I can't even imagine how much courage that must take to be like, okay, well, I'm going to transition at 35 to be a woman mm-hmm. and then I'm going to go compete and the whole world is going to like focus in on me and just target me mm-hmm. and just make my life hell. Cause I mean, we've, I mean, I know this guy's name because of social media, because of, yeah, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, no, that that is a really good point, too, because we see it as look at all the advantages that they have. But like you said, the transgender trans people who are transgender do face quite uh, tons more discrimination than people who are not transgender. So by transitioning, I guess you you would be opening yourself up to being discriminated against more so than I just, I just have such a hard time. Like, I mean, and maybe it's just like that empathy piece. Like I just can't imagine like being like, well, Hey, I'm really disappointed in my performance as a mountain biker. So I'm going to transition to be a woman so I can get on a podium. Cause we also know, like, I mean, there's tons of economic disadvantages to being a woman. Like you're going to be paid way less. I mean, what was it? Just women's soccer just recently got paid equal to what the men were getting paid. So like it, even from like, because I've heard people make these economic advantage and it's like, well, uh, I mean, you got like lots of people going overseas, like in the WNBA or whatever to participate and play there because like, there's just, they don't have the same economic advantages that a male NBA player has. So it doesn't, I mean, even from that standpoint, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. I, I don't know. I, I could be wrong. I, yeah, I, you know, and again, I'm not a, you know, economists, and I certainly don't have the answers in terms of how this plays out in sports. What I do know is that female sports generally bring in a lot less revenue than men's sports. So that I guess would be part of the reason why the pay is lower. But again, I mean, that still is unfortunate because they want the same dreams as male athletes do. I mean, like if, if anything, if I was a woman and railing about fairness in sports, I'd be more worried about like, why am I playing volleyball with a crappy scoreboard where the guys have the great scoreboard, the best, you know, mm-hmm. this and that, and the football team gets so much more money than, I mean, this and that and, you know, whatever. And yeah. like, it seems like there's a lot of disparity in our system when it comes to, so like least of my worries would be, you know, a man competing against my, my daughter to win mm-hmm. the hundred meter race. I mean, and if yeah. If we're okay. really that concerned about it, it's like, why wouldn't we just create a separate category then? If that's, you know, and it, but, but there's all these like scientific bodies like the, I mean, cause like, I mean, think about the Olympics. Mm-hmm. That woman was banned from, I can't remember her name. She was banned from running the hundred meter or 200 meters because she had smoked weed. Yeah. What was her name? I can't yeah. remember it either. But they viewed it as a performing enhancing drug and like all of us were like. We're like, uh, that would actually, if you could run yeah, that and, fast high, like, man. <laughs> well, and then like, uh, it was a Michael Phelps who had a bunch of marijuana sure. in his system too. And like, mm-hmm. nobody said anything. So like these people are like, when I say these people, I mean like the Olympics and the NCAA, they're really concerned about cheating and performance enhancing drugs and, and all yeah. these things that if they're not concerned about someone who's transitioned competing, maybe I shouldn't be. Maybe it's not that big of an issue. Maybe, good we're, point. Ma- maybe we're making it something that it's, that it's not. That's a good point. It's an interesting perspective. You said you have a daughter, Brad? I do, yeah. I have two children, a daughter and a, and a son. Yeah. How old, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, they are. My daughter is 11 and my son is 10. I'm sorry, my daughter is 12. Nice. Oh, almost a teenager. Yeah, yeah, no, she's gonna be a teenager here in a couple months here. So, oh, not okay. Wow, the big one three. Yeah, yeah, the preteen. Yeah do you do you have concerns in light of all of this social media stuff? Not as it uh, relates to the trans thing necessarily, but generally. That's an interesting point because you know one of the things that my wife and I have done is we have a I have an account for them. 
And every month that they don't access social media, mm-hmm. I put $42 because that's the meaning of nice. life, right? Like uh, ever read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the meaning of life is 42, whatever. So we put Very $42 cool. into this account. And like our, our, our standard for them is that you can't access social media until you're 16. Wow. Yeah. So we're kind of harsh about it. I mean, they do have cell awesome. phones, but we've blocked that because our perception and my perception and as a family, we've decided that there's a lot of bullying that happens on social media. And yeah, in absolutely. fact, my, my daughter had snuck and gotten a TikTok account. And <laughs> I mean, she accidentally sent me her video. Like, <laughs> she tattled she, on herself. Yeah. And then she like, she tries to deny it. And it's like, wait, look, man, you're not in trouble. But like, but then like the comments, like people, they were, they were so mean to her. Aww. Shaming her for her body and shaming her for different things. And we're like, that's awful. Yeah. So like we were able to kind of like use this as a teaching moment and be like, look, this is why we don't want you to have mm-hmm. the social media is not because you're already, I mean, she was already experiencing quite a bit of bullying in school. Mm. And then now it's like, you just open yourself up to these strangers. Yeah. Bullying you, you too. And like, that's more of what our concern was about social media was just mm-hmm. that, that aspect of it, like bullying or being bullied. Cause we didn't. Yeah. So, how's that? Yeah, and I, I hate to say it, but social media also the bullying doesn't really get better as you age either. <laughs> at least on social media. No, so. no I think uh, yeah, like people. And I'm sorry if you ever construed my comments as bullying. I was oh more, no, 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 Brad, I've never, I've never construed your comments. No, you've yeah, always been more, very straightforward. Okay, yeah, because I, I, uh, I haven't seen your posts recently, so I had. I had wondered if you had blocked me or something. And, oh, no. I'm really heavily censored on Instagram. Oh, okay. So. Okay. Because, like, I was just, yeah, I didn't, I, if you ever felt that way, I apologize. Because that was never my intent was to, because no. I, I get you're putting yourself out there and you're making yourself vulnerable by posing these, these questions sure. that are in some ways very interesting, you know. And, and Thank you. Yeah. 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 But, um, yeah so I, I did want to say, too, I did. I read one of your sub stacks and I can't remember which one it was, but it was about like uh, mental illness and seriousness and problem behavior. And I mm-hmm. found myself really agreeing with that, especially being a person who works in a space where there's a lot of really serious problem behavior or, you know, I deal yeah. with things that are not, not typical, you know, or I don't, I don't know what typical is, but, you know, so I appreciated your comments on, you know, like focusing on, certain levels of treatment. And then also like, you know, your, the ideas too, that you had uh, posted about, uh, let me think here. It was about, uh, social, the social model of disability. Cause yes, if we go way too, it, yeah, if we go way too much in the social model, then how are we going to get paid? Cause like, sure. it's all about, the, it's all about them. I mean, I thought that was like, just point on cause we're, you know, we have, you know, like there is some individuals that are really overly concerned about, mm-hmm you know, how we address and how we treat people with autism or, or whatever. And we know that applied yeah. analysis is really being kind of targeted by uh, what the neurodiversity movement, there's like a Facebook group that they kind of lurk and follow because if you say <laughs> anything and you're an ABA professional, they'll ban you. Yes. Um, so, but I just will read their comments and I find it um, scary and like, just, scary in terms of outcomes. Yeah, scary that they just want to ban applied hmm. behavior analysis because Loveless did a study in the 1970s. Yeah. And I yeah. find that to be 
one, you were not really taking Loveless and putting him in his, we're not taking that conceptual or that contextual view of his behavior. Cause like in the seventies, when he was addressing the effeminate treatments of, of people, it's oh, like homosexuality was very much considered a mental illness. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was in the mm-hmm. 1960s and seventies where they were saying like, you know, there's nothing worse than being a homosexual man. And, yeah. you know, and like they were viewed with such disgust. Yeah, exactly. In our yeah. society that like, we, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think, I don't know. I think when people discount all of applied behavior analysis because of loveless or because of such and such, I feel like that's. Yeah. Interesting and that's, and, and go scary. Ahead. It's scary because it's just like, you're discounting a whole entire field of how we learn and how we acquire and how we gain knowledge and how mm-hmm. like, these are just phenomenons that have been discovered, like shaping mm-hmm. and reinforcement and, and language and all these things. These are just phenomenons that have been discovered that we found that, Hey, I can teach or instruct different ways by modeling or changing these contingencies. So. Yeah. And I don't see that same need to repent in other fields and other fields have gone through the same past. I, that's how things develop. Everything started probably in this weird barbaric way because that they did the best that they could at the time. And that, of course, people were treated poorly. That's never acceptable for any reason. People in the 50s and 60s who had mental illness, yes, they were treated like animals. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But I think now we're, most people are willing to to lend any hand to somebody that is disabled or mentally ill and we do everything that we can to like you said earlier with with calling someone by their preferred name and pronoun i mean if if we're able to give them that little gift of hope in some way i think a lot of us would do that so it's really disappointing to see us focus so heavily on something one that we weren't even a part of and two what are we supposed to do about it i mean should we just erase the past entirely <laughs> like yeah. that's what i want to know what what do these people propose the solution be yeah no i mean there there has been some times where i've been listening to like uh, for example i was listening to the behavior observations and they had a a bunch of like uh study authors or java author authors mm-hmm. and they were describing this idea of assent and mm-hmm. treatment and i was really surprised to hear behavior analysis is like, oh, maybe we ought to ask people if they want to be treated. And it's like, because like, you know, as a, I mean, I was trained as a counselor before I became a BCBA. And so Mm -hmm. I have like that dual credential, but like, it was all about like consent. You want to consent for treatment. You want people to sign and you want to understand the risk and benefit. But then I think in the field and the place that I work at, sometimes you can't get consent because you're working with someone who's in crisis and like, I'm not going to pause and be like, hey, what do you think about X, Y, and Z? I might have to do some treatment interventions without consent, or maybe consent is given after the fact. Like, I, I mean, I'm a fan of reviewing treatment plans with people that I work with. Me too. But yeah. And I feel like that's really important, but there are times when I'm in an emergency where I might not mm-hmm. pause and... You know, in fact, uh, I was trained up in a nursing home and like I in an ICF facility and I worked. So I've worked a lot with people that are institutionalized. And mm-hmm. I, I read this article and it was I can't even I wish I could remember what it was, but it was talking. It was a psychologist talking about treatment in a in a sniff, a skilled nursing mm-hmm. facility where you can't always get consent because a person's in crisis. They're suicidal yeah. or they're trying to elope or they're wandering or. Or, or whatever it is, or they're cheeking their medication, you might not, 
hey, can you sign this piece of paper before, you know, I do X, Y, and Z. But I do think it's interesting that as a field, we haven't really, applied behavior analysis hasn't really considered that. So I find that to be, I find that to be interesting. But I mostly, I kind of wonder too, if that's not because we're really self-focused. You know, like we don't really look outside of applied behavior analysis for mm-hmm. or what other disciplines are saying. Like mm-hmm. what does the American Counseling Association say? What is, you know, what is what does the APA say? What is whatever whoever what these neuroscientists saying about autism or, or whatever? Like we're not, you know, we get hyper focused on, on the Java. Yeah, <laughs> Java. Yeah, or yeah. the other one. Yeah, I mean, speaking of, like issues of Java sitting here. Yeah. Yeah. Brad, do you find sometimes that your counseling background makes it difficult to uphold certain principles of behavior analysis? Um, I I mean, that's a good question. I actually feel like my behavior analysis background makes me a better counselor. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because I feel like the heavy emphasis on like science and Mm -hmm. the seven principles and investigation, like I feel like it actually and like the idea of parsimony like often just looking for explanations that don't have so many confounding variables are often really helpful for me as Mm -hmm. a counselor. And it also leads me to like really reflect on evidence-based treatment or is my intervention actually having effect? Mm -hmm. Because I have to like consider, here's my graph and I did X intervention. Did it actually decrease problem behavior and and so forth? Um, So yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I don't, I don't feel conflicted at all. In fact, I, like most, many of us actually really love applied behavior analysis. I think it's pretty fantastic. So obviously I'm working here. I've been doing it for a long time and not officially. I didn't, I just got credentialed a few months ago. But, you know. Oh, wow. Nice. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So I was uh, credentialed as a, cause like in, I live in the West and applied behavior analysis wasn't, isn't really that big of a deal. Like, so mm-hmm. I grew up in, in Utah and then here in Wyoming, I'm only one of like maybe 37 BCBAs wow. in Wyoming. But Brad, as we, as we wrap up here, I kind of wanted to talk about things where we have shared a lot of common ground. Although this conversation, I think we have a lot more common ground than maybe we both oh, realized. I, I, I believe I might actually have to revise my review. Yeah. Because so, <laughs> I realized too that I might have been making some assumptions that weren't fair. So. No, I and I do the same thing. Like I, I want to make sure that people know too that you know I am. I've always been very blunt. I've always been very out there with my opinions, but I'm definitely not immune to to bias and kind of looking too far in one direction. So that's why I was so appreciative of of your honesty, and I want more honesty from you about uh, trauma informed care. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So I look at trauma informed care as uh, being. Uh, essential to my work because I work in an institution mm-hmm. um, and it'd be pretty easy to figure out which institution that is because I live in such a small, a small state. But like, I think trauma, in my opinion, when I think of trauma informed care, I look at the impact that institutions have on people and like mm-hmm. the way that we provide care, the way that we deliver care. And I also, one of the things that I found to be really interesting is that ACEs study, right? The adverse childhood experiences yeah. study is that when I look mm-hmm. at a lot of people that I that I work with who are at higher risk of restraints, whether that's physical or, or chemical restraints, there's a, a theme there of, of trauma that mm-hmm. blends through all of them. And it's like a really traumatic childhood. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, I look at like 
as they come here and they, they live with, with us here at the place that I work at. And sure. how does our protocols and how do what we do as a facility, how does that impact people and the quality of their life? So I am with you like on like when people just throw that out there, like it's like when schools throw out PBIS, like we're a positive yeah. behavior. Like, what does I don't that mean? Even, yeah, exactly. Like what does it mean? Or we're a trauma informed school. Like what does that actually mean? Like what are your policies? What are you doing? Like mm-hmm. when, you know, like a lot of times, like we know kids don't have food or they don't and like schools are like, we're not gonna buy you food. You've got to do all this. And like we're not mm-hmm. even looking at those basic fundamental human needs. And a lot of times when I deal with like problem behavior in my own facility, that's the first place I go is like, Hey, when's the last time that person ate? When's the last time yeah. they pooped? Like, these are things that I consider while someone is acting irrational or whatever mm-hmm. you might want to call it. Like they're in the middle of a behavior. Like, mm-hmm. what is that? Like, what is driving that behavior? And a lot of times I find it's something pain or, or it's, you know, I'm disappointed because, yeah. you know, you're okay, not going to take me. Yeah, you're not going to take me to McDonald's and I'm mad about it because you said you would and now you're now you're not. Now you're, I re- no, and I now you're stiffing how, me. <laughs> yeah, well, I realize how much power that I have as a professional up mm-hmm. here, like up where I work. Like I have the ability to make somebody's life hell or not. Mm. You know, and I hate to like use mat phrases, but that's mat, right? The mm-hmm. mat is a system of restraint, but they talk a lot about being a tool of torture, an instrument of inspiration. And it's like, yeah. But then I think about like Murray Sidman, right? Like all his work mm-hmm. on counter control. So sure. a lot of times like things that I experience up here are because people don't have access to reinforcement. So they do things that make it so I have to do stuff. Like I have to pause and listen or, hey, I'm going to say that I'm suicidal because, you know, I want a hamburger and you just told me no. Yeah. You know, And it's like and these are... I mean, I don't mean to dim- diminish anyone who's suicidal, but it's like these are situations I've dealt with. That, so I look at trauma-informed care being more. Is that does that answer your question? I'm sorry. I'm just- it does. No, that's perfect because I I love to ask kind of everybody how they see it because and you and me I think have have interacted before about this. Is there are so many different versions of it, so it's hard to uphold what we think trauma-informed care is if if we all have our own idea of it. So. Yeah, I, like I, try to, I try to look at this, the SAMHSA, whatever the, the substance abuse and mental health associate, what they put, mm-hmm. they put out a lot of work on trauma informed care and delivering trauma. And there's even a, a really good book by Karen, uh, Karen Horney. I think it's called trauma informed behavior interventions where they, she mm-hmm. talks a lot about, cause like, I think one of the mistakes that I, I've made in my own past is sometimes using what people dearly love against them like comply or I'm not going to give you X, Y, and Z. And I found sure. that that actually doesn't create a good culture. Yeah. It doesn't create a good environment. It just is the opposite. Like, mm-hmm. why am I withholding this from someone? Were you trained that way you think? And maybe that's why, or was it? Um, I wasn't trained that way. I think it's just my perception of what I thought. And I think, I mean, if I was to really criticize applied behavior analysis, I would be mm-hmm. looking more at, because like, for example, like a lot of people that I know that say they're behavior analysts, like they have no training or like yeah. you go to the school it's when scary. it's like, it's a teacher who's mm-hmm. just running the behavior room or whatever they call it. And they have no formal training yeah. in behavior analysis, but yet they're writing behavior plans. They're doing functional behavior assessments or, or whatever. And it's like, well, how come you don't have any 
training or any supervision or any formal education right. in this. So I've often wondered, like when people claim that applied behavior analysis is abusive, did was it delivered by someone who was a BA who had that training? Because a lot of, I mean, because like in this, where I work at, like there's, we have such a difficult time recruiting people because it's so small and isolated, but we'll get people to come here and say they're behavior analysts, but the terms they're not, they're like a social worker or, or whatever. And they don't have that robust training in behavior analysis. So they'll think that it's all punishment and like, it's all, well, I'm going to take away all of this person's stuff because that'll make them comply because they hit me. So I'm going to take away their TV. Yeah. Like that more typical childhood version of discipline is kind yes. of the go-to. Yeah. And I've also even, I mean, I even think sometimes people will assume they're experts in behavior because they've been parented or mm. they are a parent. And I'm like, man, if you were my parent, I would be, <laughs> you would not, yeah. Uh, that'd be You'd a be rough go at childhood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, why, who would want to be parented by you? Like, I don't even. Yeah. 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 So I no. think I, I sometimes wonder like a lot of these people who, when I say these people like the neurodiversity movement and these different groups on Facebook when they criticize applied behavior analysis. And I know that's like one of, I think it's Justin Leaf, like one of his big critiques mm. is did they actually get applied? And then, you know, like, as you said too, like the self-diagnosis, we're getting people that are self-identifying that they have autism and then claiming that they were abused by ABA. I mean, I think it's interesting to listen to that, but I don't, man, I don't know. I don't want to say too much here. Cause it's like, what do I think about that? I feel like it's, it's ethically ambiguous and like, I don't want to beat myself up about it because, you know, yeah, I haven't been trained in any way that would lead me to abuse somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And it, that, it just gets really hard for us to do our jobs too, because again, we're trying to be empathetic that if you feel like you have a di- you want to seek out a diagnosis, obviously you feel like something is wrong. Something is interfering with your life. And these people, a lot of them, I feel like are looking for answers. And that's scary for a lot of people. So I try to be empathetic in that regard, too. Um, But going back to kind of my feelings about social media and discriminating between who's in pain and who is just kind of more looking for a hashtag or a belonging, that's where I continuously find myself. I can agree with that because, like, you know, you want to get those followers and you want to get those reshares. We want to be viral. I mean, yeah. I, I actually, I don't know too many people that are like that either, but you know, yeah, there are definitely yeah. people out there that do that. Totally. Totally. Well, Brad, I really, really appreciate you coming on. You actually have no idea how thankful I am that you agreed to, uh, to talk to me about this. Oh, I don't well, get many for... people who agree. <laughs> so. Oh yeah. No, thank you for inviting me. I was, I've been actually really nervous about it, but I appreciate it. Oh. How easy it's been to talk to you and how conversational oh, of course. This, is, this I, has been. I completely agree. This has been like one of my favorite conversations I think I've honestly had. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. You got it, Brad. Enjoy the freezing cold Wyoming. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, if anybody's ever interested, I don't know if you put plugs out there, but. I do. My, my, my facility, the, we work out for the government. We're always looking for VAs. Oh, good yeah, to know. And they're also our state hospital. Our forensic cool. hospital is hiring a BA, a BCBA. Oh wow! Yeah, I don't forensic know how, hospital. That's yeah, cool. I don't know how many opportunities there are for that. So I feel like that's 
Very cool. Interesting and pretty unique. Super interesting. So, All right, guys, move to Jackson Hole is what Brad like, is Lander saying. Lander and Evanston, yeah. Lander, that's what I meant yeah, to say, not Jackson yeah. Hole. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Brad, I really appreciate it. Well, you can leave it. You just, you, yeah. Hey, anyway, yeah, I'll see you later. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Ha, ha, ha.